I think that's like maybe 99.9% of it. Having an honest lifelike story that's there that's kind of, I always say kind of trapped in amber for the future. And they're overlooked. They're overlooked people in a lot of cases, you know, these stories. Caring for people, I guess, is, uh, is kind of important if you want to be a figurative painter. Painting the, the Holocaust survivors for me has been really educational. It's an entire spectrum of humanity and, and how that they cope with what they've been through, with how they love and the families that they've built. And I find their lives extremely inspiring as to what they've been through. And a lot of them just keep going and they don't use that as an excuse as to anything. They just they just go and they have these thriving lives and the, this immigrant kind of spirit that is undiminished at all. They're not they're not victims. You know, they don't think of themselves as victims. And I think that's something that's really, really powerful that I've learned from uh, doing this series. And for me, trying to, you know, we all want to better ourselves and technically and whatever, but we also, also don't we all want to become more human ourselves and having an excuse to interact with other humans in a way that's more intimate, thoughtfully and, and deeply. It's, uh, it's a great job. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 259th episode, I'm excited to be joined by David Casson, who spoke with me from Brooklyn, where he's traveling, but is currently residing in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We talk all about his studio practice, which explores a lot of representational figurative works, and we talk a bit about various paintings and drawings, the processes utilized to paint figures that he knows, family members, as well as friends, but especially these recent series of paintings that he has done of Holocaust survivors. And we talk about the process of getting to know them and being able to kind of deliver this emotional impact after spending hours and years sometimes painting some of these works and learning about these subjects and building these relationships. And so that's all coming up in the episode. So stay tuned for that. Before you dive into that, definitely go check out his website, davidcaston.com. It has all sorts of works as well as information, including social media links. And I do want to encourage you to follow David on Instagram. That's David Casson. And once again, he has a two-person exhibition opening up with John Nava called Elegies at the Vita Art Center in Ventura, California. That's June 12th through August 14th. And there'll be a link up on the Studio Break website. If this is the first time you're hearing of Studio Break, head on over to studiobreak.com. We've got a big archive of episodes there with professional artists working in a variety of different materials, emerging artists. Each of our posts there have images of the artist's artwork, links to their websites, and of course, you can listen right there using the default player or just click those links and subscribe the podcast. It's a great studio companion, so definitely be sure to subscribe. Studio Break is all over social media, so be sure to like our Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter, at Studio Break. And, of course, be sure to follow on Instagram, at Studio underscore Break. And with those brief announcements, let's dive right into this episode with David Cassett. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break. David Cassett, how are you doing this morning? Doing okay. Well, great to have you on. Obviously, we're going to talk all about your paintings and certainly have a you know, huge depth of work at davidcasson.com. So people should go check that out. I always love, you know, learning about people's backgrounds, especially like where they grew up and, you know, early influences and, you know, maybe things that you were doing when you were younger, but maybe just start off there. Where did you uh, grow up? Yeah. So I was a military brat. Uh, my dad was a pilot in the air force and we lived, uh, well, I was born in Arkansas, Little Rock or the air force base there. I think it's just North in, um, I want to say like Jacksonville or Fayetteville or someplace like that. I forget. But uh, basically we lived there for only about a year and a half. And then we moved to Germany. My dad was stationed at Ramstein Air Force Base in Germany. And then we were living there for about four years, which was pretty incredible for kind of as a kid understanding like the world and seeing things. Because we traveled all over Europe when I was really, really little and just starting to make out shapes myself. And so we went all through Italy, all through France, all through Germany itself. And I think that that had a really huge impact on me wanting to become an artist. Mm -hmm. And then after 
four years there, we moved to uh, South Jersey near Philadelphia. My dad retired from the Air Force at McGuire Air Force Base. And then we got a house kind of in the suburbs of Philadelphia called Medford, New Jersey. And that's kind of where I really kind of grew up, grew up, was South Jersey, Philadelphia. First art museum kind of went to as a teenager was the Philadelphia Museum of Art and the Barnes Foundation. And so they were pretty much huge influences on me as a kid. I just fell in love with walking into museums and seeing just paintings that just kind of fooled my eye a little bit. I always wondered, like, looking at the side of a painting, like, how did they do that? Mm-hmm. You know, even just falling in love with just the colors on a, on a canvas and, and how they were applied and the textures and stuff. Like, there's a, what is it, a Chagall painting that's a really beautiful called The Poet Half Past Three. And it's just such a beautiful painting texture-wise and scale and everything. It's just, it just really made me fall in love with just this idea of being a painter. So to kind of think back to some of those times too, though, were you kind of like somebody that was drawing all that time? I mean, again, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me to think about the context of, you know, the types of drawings that I was making as a kid, you know, like monsters, spaceships, you know, things that are small and contained, you know, going to a museum and seeing something massive, obviously, you know, that's also something that I would imagine made a huge impression on you as well. Yeah, I think I was kind of like every kid kind of doodling and stuff on your paper and stuff while you were listening to, to a class. I wasn't the most studious of uh, students, but I think that my art classes, I definitely kind of, I felt like I was a little bit ahead of most people, I guess, in the clarity that I could see something. And the interest was there because I had that clarity. Yeah, and then going again to that museum really made me want to figure out how these paintings were made. And then my my parents were really awesome, even though my my dad was super straight-laced, like you got to get a job when you get out, like he wanted me do something that would be better than what he his life you know what i mean and his Mm -hmm. jobs he's had basically they were really supportive anyway of me wanting to be an artist or wanting to get to kind of follow in this kind of career kind of path and so they put me in classes in philadelphia at the uh university of the arts Mm -hmm. so that's when i was 15 years old i would go there on the weekends and take figure drawing classes and still life drawing classes and just design classes it was a lot of fun. They had a basically a Saturday, Sunday kind of program, I, I believe. And I used to take the high speed line train, which would go from New Jersey into into Philadelphia and drop me there. And I would walk from the train myself at 15 through the city, which I thought was pretty amazing, mm-hmm. just to have a sense of independence, you know, in a, in a big city and um, take classes and then head home. It was it was really exciting. And, you know, you kind of described this, I believe, somewhere that I read that, you know, you've always kind of just been an artist, or at least in the sense of like, there wasn't this, you know, big decision where you're like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm choosing to be an artist all of a sudden. Is it just something that you kind of always kind of felt and, and kind of was like, okay, I have to pursue this is just my thing. This is what I'm doing. Yeah, pretty much. You know how people will say that an artist, if you're halfway decent or whatever, they say how talented you are and that you were given this gift or whatever and such and such. And, and I really kind of don't really believe in that all that much. <laughs> I believe that talent really equals love. And it was just something that I really loved doing. You know, I love doing it more than math. You know, there's some people that just love math and then they, they just want to do more of it, you know, and so they're dedicated to it. And then they become quote unquote talented at it, you know, or they become good at math. And I think that's kind of where I've been with art. I'm never really thought of myself as being like the best artist in any of my classes that I've taken when I was in college or anything. I think that I just love doing it. And then I'm just kind of super dedicated. And in return, I think you get better at doing it. You just fall into it just naturally. And I'm, I'm curious, like, were there other things that you were interested in as well? You know, I'm, I know that obviously like literature or studying music or anything like that, you know, pops up here and there, but was that something that was part of it or is it just kind of really kind of just driven to be making art? Oh no, totally. I mean, when I was in school, my best friend growing up was a musician, you know, he played guitar really, really well. And so I got a guitar and he would teach me how to play guitar. It didn't come naturally to me. Mm -hmm. And again, it wasn't something I loved as much as art as painting or drawing that it didn't kind of stick after I graduated high school. I went to Syracuse University and purposely didn't want to go to an art school that was only art. 
I wanted to go to a school that had a really good history department and philosophy department and literature department so that I could be a little bit more well-rounded. And so it wasn't just a full meal of just painting all the time, you know, and so they had really great professors that were really interested in what the students were doing within the art school. But then there were other schools where you could take classes and that you could study philosophy, you know, and mm-hmm. learn how to write. And that was really important, I think, for my, my growth. And what was your experience like there? Because I know, you know, a lot of maybe younger students that are taking a drawing one class and, and having to draw a vase or something like that, you know, it doesn't, doesn't kind of grab their attention in the same way. But it sounds like, given your background, that was something that you kind of gravitated towards. So I, I would assume that you kind of burned through those classes. But what was that experience like, especially considering, uh, you know, the high degree of uh, representational work that you make now? Colleges was really exciting because it was a place where you could actually free think and think for yourself versus all the other classes in high school. Like I wasn't a very good high school student at all. You know, it was kind of read and regurgitate, you know, and memorize it for a test and all that. Some of the writing classes I had, were you had to be really thoughtful about what you were trying to say within writing. It wasn't, that's what kind of, I think what stuck with me more than the kind of the technical classes necessarily of, of like you said, like having a still life in front of you. But I had some really good foundation teachers. When I was at school, I had a woman named Sarah McCubrey, mm-hmm. who's an amazing landscape painter. And so she was my, my drawing one teacher and she wouldn't just do a still life. She would kind of set it up within context of other objects. And it wasn't just kind of the basics, I guess, where you draw a value scale and, and you kind of apply that to something that you see in three dimensions and, I guess that was there, but it was kind of like a hidden way of getting better at perception of what you're seeing versus just being completely um, pedantic with just straight on just this is what you're doing steps to kind of be able to um, apply that to your paper as a drawing. And did you have like a lot of experiences with other, you know, 3D materials and, and processes as well? We had a 3D class. We had a, a two dimensional design class which is more color and shape and, and figure ground relationships and stuff like that. Then we had our drawing class. We had issues in art, which was like an art theory class. It was a pretty well-rounded program for, for foundation students. I'm not sure what it is now. Cause this was 25 years ago, probably now. Sure. <laughs> yeah. It's hard. It's hard to imagine sometimes as you're getting into that middle age, like how, how many years back it is. Right. Yeah. But it still, it still seems close. You know, <laughs> no, I know it's it's a it's a weird experience going through all of this, because I think, you know, especially, you know, starting college, I kind of had that same kind of philosophy, like, you know, I, f- I kind of felt lost before that. And so that was kind of my goal is to find out who I am, you know, and I think what better way to do that than to, you know, be hanging out with a bunch of other artists trying to do the same thing, you know. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. And I'm curious, especially like, you know, thinking about your work at the time then, I mean, you know, you described earlier taking, you know, figurative drawing classes and uh, things like that. I mean, was that kind of the main drive, I guess, at that time still? Or were you kind of doing other things, uh, you know, before you got to maybe the the work that everybody maybe kind of knows you by? I was a 19 to 22 year old kid who really didn't have a lot of life experience or understand where art can go and the possibilities of it or the depths that it can kind of portray. So I don't, I don't really think I was a, I don't think I was an artist at all. I think I was just kind of learning these ideas of skills that could probably be used in later life as I saw more and and had more thoughtful ideas to basically apply those, the techniques to, I guess. Mm -hmm. And, and I don't think I was even fully formed as a technically as an artist when I got out of college either, you know, I was still kind of thirsting for more, technical uh, facility. When I moved to New York City right after graduation, I, I enrolled at the Art Students League in New York and, and was there for, wow, like five or six years now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was it was a while taking classes and working from life from the model. And so that also kind of helped inform. And I think that we're kind of, as artists, I think you can kind of force things or you can kind of have things kind of push you in different directions. You know, so I'm very much guided by the environment of what I see around me and the people I meet and kind of free form in that way where I don't really want to force what it is I'm trying to say within paint. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I guess it's a less thoughtful way of doing things because things just kind of come to me. <laughs> it just sure, sure. Versus overthink anything. Well, and I want to just kind of get to that idea too of like, you know, how do you how would you characterize your paintings being different to in terms of that time? You know, you're kind of very open about this idea of I am essentially a sponge. I'm going to gather all of these techniques, all these experiences, try to slowly put them together. But like, I guess to think about like what was different about it, I mean, were you, you know, painting wildly imaginative portraits or landscapes or was it just kind of everything and you weren't kind of hundred percent committed on anything, you know, kind of leaving that experience from undergrad? Yeah. Oh, great question. At that time I was really fascinated by design and grunge typography and the idea of abstraction within the environment, you know, kind of found abstraction and how Rauschenberg would bring like these combine paintings into a museum, you know, or into a gallery that were kind of just refuse that he found on the street. And that idea of kind of seeing not necessarily street art, but like textures of, of different strata, in the city that there would be like one layer would be painted over wood and then that'd be peeled off. And then a graffiti artist would do a spray paint kind of edge or something like that on it. And then it would be covered with a playbill for a a show. And then that would be covered over with tape or something, you know? Mm -hmm. So these different layers of kind of man's kind of interaction with the environment was stuff that really fascinated me. And then I wanted to also get, something living within that kind of abstract space for the longest time i've been really fighting with this idea of getting abstraction and realism together because they're kind of these contrasts and i always kind of think of contrast within i mean you think of it in a very basic way that we even draw a figure with a single light source you know you have light and dark right you have abstraction you have realism you have like monochromatic versus highly chromatic so fighting with these different opposites and having them kind of fit together has always been kind of a challenge for me. And I think that's something I was really interested in early, early on with when I moved to New York. I was really interested in learning about the city. When I was little, and I still think about this, the town I kind of grew up in when I was like five or six years old and like fifth or when I was like in second grade or something, I remember riding my bike and I remember every like crack in the sidewalk. I remember going through these alleyways in the main street and then going to the park and and kind of still remembering what it was like to be there. And I think that kind of stuck with me when I was an adult Mm -hmm. where I still remember walking through New York city, like the first week I was there and feeling the texture on the walls and, and trying to kind of, how could I emit that within my own work? You know, and then also New York's a very, you don't necessarily drive too many places. You're constantly confronted with people, right? And so this idea of, well, everyone's got these stories that are, that are walking by me. How can I kind of understand what someone else is thinking in, in their life and, and how this environment that we're kind of sharing, how can that get involved within painting as well? And so that's something that kind of interests me. Yeah, again, just being kind of immersed in these in these areas and kind of soaking them up and and that was still really early was something that I've always tried to do. I remember I had a, had a critique once from uh, William Bailey. Uh, he came to the art school. I was, I was taking classes at not the art students league, the national Academy of design. And he critiqued uh, one of my pieces that was kind of abstract and realistic or whatever. And it was really, really early on. And he told me worlds just don't live together within the piece. And I kind of took that to heart that, um, well, let's figure out how we can make these live together. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. This very formalistic kind of idea of abstraction with something that's, I don't know, hyper real, I guess. I don't know how to representational. Mm-hmm. Just trying to capture something that's living within a painting as well as something that has an interesting texture and design. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that's interesting, too, is everybody ascribes uh, slightly different meanings to some of these terms, you know. So I think it's helpful to kind of think about them, you know, especially from your perspective, you know, to think about that balance. And I guess, you know, randomly, just another, you know, life kind of question relative to this time. What what are you doing? Because I think a lot of people, you know, again, as a Midwesterner and, you know, you kind of talked about growing up in some different areas too. you know, maybe like a Midwesterner might, like myself might think about like the idea of moving to New York at a young age and just being, you know, like you hear horror stories of like, you know, working 15 jobs and, <laughs> you know, drawing it at, you know, from three to five in the morning when you have, when I have time, um, what were you doing in, in terms of, uh, supporting yourself? 
Yeah, so I moved there with my girlfriend at the time from Syracuse. She graduated six months ahead of me. She was uh, a year older than me. She got kind of set up an apartment and stuff. We moved out to Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, which is kind of far out, almost to Staten Island, and found a really kind of affordable place. And I was really interested in graphic design and web design and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. For the first two years I was in New York, I did internet web development and design, which was kind of interesting and kind of fun. Uh, this was 1999, which was kind of like the first internet boom slash bust mm-hmm. <laughs> that they had. So I had a job at IXL, which was an internet consulting company, and worked there for about a year. And then I jumped ship with a couple other employees to a, a dot com that was a music dot com. So I, I do also really love music, like listening to music and and songwriting and stuff like that and so this, this company would do live webcasts from concert venues all over the country oh, wow. which was sounds easy now but back then <laughs> nobody had, had a broadband at that mm-hmm. point and so they were a little ahead of their time and that they kept having to update all these uh, broadband connections for all these clubs and it became unyielding and expensive for them for the content that they were getting because if you think about your digital camera do you remember what your digital camera was back in 2001 Right. 2000 it was maybe a two two or three megapixel <laughs> <laughs> camera that cost you like two thousand dollars anyway so i did that um luckily i got into a gallery where they were kind of representing me in the back room i didn't really make it on the walls of the gallery very often and so they would just have a look at my pieces every now and then and see if they could sell them and uh so they they kind of that was right when i moved to new york so when I was 22, which is pretty awesome, and I think that kind of really helped me spur on the wanting to not work uh, full time mm-hmm. for the rest of my life. You know, I had a gallery that was actually a pretty strong gallery. They were in Soho. They kind of believed in me, I felt. So kind of stuck with them and, and kept giving them work once a month. So I was, like you're saying, working. I think I would get up at like 7, get to work by like 9, work until about 7 p.m., get home at 8, and then start painting until (laughs) like 2 in the morning and then do that all over again, you know? I tried to get them one piece every month. And they were mostly landscape paintings at that time because I was still trying to feel out the city. Painting always has been for me as an excuse to kind of understand my environment and get to know people and and understand that kind of way of interacting with, with life. So yeah, no, I, I definitely had a job, you know, <laughs> I come from money at all. And, uh, it's, it's definitely been a struggle. So, but after nine 11, I was on a train going across the Manhattan bridge, looking at what was going on and just kind of deathly afraid and mortality just kind of like settles in when you're, you see something that you, you usually would only see in a movie. Mm-hmm. It really kind of wakes you up. After 9-11, one month after my company, which was the dot-com, laid off, what is it, like 60 out of 65 people in the wow. company. Only the venture capitalists kept their jobs. And so I basically went on unemployment insurance. And all my buddies were like, we're working freelance gigs and all this other stuff. I decided to uh, use the unemployment insurance to go back to school to learn how to paint better. Mm-hmm. So I knew if I wanted to get out of the back room of the gallery and onto the walls, I'd have to become a way better painter. And so I enrolled at the National Academy of Design, which was on the Upper East Side. I don't think they're around anymore. And at the Art Students League. And so I started taking classes in the morning for three hours and in the afternoon for three hours. And then I would do an LPM class, which is a late evening class mm-hmm. as well. That gets really addicting, you know, because you have a model every single day. You're constantly learning and getting better. Um, I know some people that have been there for maybe 30, 40 years doing that, just taking classes, which is kind of nuts. The thing that made me kind of stop that, which was actually the best thing in my life, was that my son was born. When he was born, I became a stay-at-home dad and basically watched him. And when my wife would come home, we got married, I would pass him off to her <laughs> and I would go into the into the school again for, the I think, the last year. So this is 2006, 2007. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started taking night classes there. And then that eventually bled over into um, just making a full-time living as a painter. Not doing classes anymore. Teaching, actually, instead. 
Right. I mean, the dream, essentially, right? It's a dream now. I remember it being really, um, not necessarily hard, but yeah, just pretty in, in, in intense kind of learning environment and state of flux for my life at that point. You know, I kind of think of it as I kind of went through like a bottleneck, you know, where I didn't have a lot of money for a good five or six years, but then came through with, with some skills that I could use to make a living, you know? Yeah. And it, it strikes me again that it's really just about that grind. You know, I think that there's uh, this perception that, you know, and when I say something like living the dream, you know, I think about it like in the sense that every artist has that dream just to be making paintings, making sculpture, whatever, and, you know, selling it and just being able to focus solely on the work. But you have this, you know, immense balancing act that you're juggling as you're, you know, uh, starting a family and, and, you know, also trying to fit time in to be a better painter. And so I think that, you know, that idea of, you know, uh, living the dream or kind of, you know, being that dream artist or something like that, again, it's all mixed up because it's, again, so much, so much of it is about that, that work ethic, that continuation, which you, you know, you even described earlier, like maybe never feeling like a painting is done or a drawing is done or, you know, that kind of compulsion almost. I mean, how, how would you describe it? I would like to think that it, it would never be done. <laughs> I think that comes to all of us at one point, you know, but no, I, even today, like it's still kind of a hustle in a way to get museum shows or get noticed for your paintings and get people to, to give a shit, you know, about what it is you're working on because there's so much art out there. Like what makes your stuff any better than somebody else's, you know? And is it the work ethic? Like, I don't think that I was born with the clarity that I see in some artists, you know, that just see things better and are amazing painters and I'm totally blown away mm -hmm. and like humbled every single day that I see some of the, their works online. I think that we're all human beings, right? And so I think that we're all different paths within this journey and that if you work really hard and you're really committed to something, you can kind of get there. And so I think that definitely learning is a lifelong pursuit within this career and that makes it exciting. You know, it's never, you might get quote unquote stuck, but I feel like I can get through any of these plateaus. You know, I'm, I'm definitely really an insecure painter and draftsman, mm -hmm. but I think that insecurity kind of pushes me to be better. And, and I'm confident though. <laughs> I'm insecure, but very confident if you can have both. <laughs> yeah. And I can, I can figure out things and that it's not even necessarily a competition thing with anybody else, but that I can get out what it is I'm trying to say within my work and my ideas can come out on the canvas in a way that they visually communicate things in a, in a, in a well-meaning way. Well, it's, it's so great to hear you say that because I feel like, you know, we live, especially in the past year, you know, there's been such an online kind of world that I think artists have been living in, you know, especially with all of the uh, openings, you know, kind of being shut down and then those things are all coming back slowly but to kind of think about that perception is, you know, people are, you know, swiping on their phone and just going like, oh, my gosh, David's amazing. I could never be like David. To think about, like, again, that idea that all hopefully artists have that kind of like, I don't know, sense of reflection that kind of, um, I don't know, maybe that's a bad thing. But <laughs> I feel like so much is generated from that. And it's not, you know, like, again, like you're saying, like a competition thing necessarily, but just um, almost like a competition with yourself, you know. But I think in a similar way to kind of like exercise or something like that, I feel like I'm sure that after you kind of sit down and, you know, spend your, your two hours or whatever you might have to kind of fit in, I'm sure that that time afterwards, you're, you're pretty excited to have made some progress on that work. Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. I think that is kind of the reward, you know, and I think you have to give yourself rewards <laughs> and you have to be an optimist, I think, to do this kind of gig. I don't know. I'm always trying to look at the bright side of things. You know, I think that being kind of locked in in the house to just be more introverted is a good thing for artists, mm -hmm. I hope. You know, um, it's curious about these openings. I'm actually going to an opening tonight that my, my wife is also a painter. So I got I got divorced, unfortunately, about 11 years ago now mm -hmm. and then remarried about a year ago, a little over a year ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, my wife is also a painter. And so I get to go see her work tonight at a, at a show here in New York, which is kind of fun. Yeah. And I think we, we talk a lot about this stuff back and forth, you know, because we both want to we want to help each other improve as much as we can. And uh, and she's also a figurative painter. But, 
with like a lot more um, social uh, ideas and concepts behind our work. Yeah. And I guess, you know, to talk about the work, I guess we should do that a little bit, right? You know, you kind of describe, you know, kind of capturing this kind of emotive quality of the subjects. And I guess, you know, maybe that's something that we could talk a little bit about is, you know, how does that relationship, I guess, work with, with somebody that you're going to, to choose or kind of collaborate with? Because obviously, you know, like I pointed out, the, the drawing of your son at, at three months old, very obviously, you know, this is your child. This is somebody that you're, you know, connected to. But, you know, for somebody that might be kind of casually looking at some of these paintings, I still think that you, there's something that you capture or like an essence, but maybe describe that, that process that you have in, in terms of kind of working with, a, a, you know, somebody that you might paint. Yeah, well, I mean, that, I appreciate that. I guess I feel like any magic trick or anything that would be kind of behind the painting that I don't see because mm-hmm. I'm not laboring over them, but I'm doing them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not mystified by anything I do. Lately, it's been working from photography. I used to only work from life at the league every single every single day. And mm-hmm. when I got out of school, it was really hard to kind of keep that going. You kind of get an ingrained training on how to see form that I've been learning how to become a better photographer to be able to always keep things within form and making it quote unquote realistic and three dimensional within the space of using photography. And that's changed over the years because photography has changed in the last 20 years Mm -hmm. and digital photography. And so using that as a tool, it's funny you think about looking at your phone and, and swiping like you're talking about on Instagram. And I think a lot of people think I'm a photorealist painter because Conceptually, if you take a photograph of a human being and you take a photograph of a painting that's striving to be that human being, both are photographs. Instead of seeing a painting in real life where the viewer has their human perception interacting with the painting where they can see the texture and understand the edges and everything, the photo kind of takes that, takes the human experience out of viewing the artwork as well. I think about where my work is actually viewed and, and how it's viewed. And a lot of the things I strive for get lost, unfortunately. (laughs) Like, for instance, the lighting in a gallery, right? So, like, I use very specific lights in the studio so that I can see how color is rendering in a better way. So my lights are, like, CRI, color rendering index of, like, 98 uh, daylight bulbs and everything so that I can kind of strive to get these warms and cools to intermix within the skin tones that I would see from the models when we had daylight at the Art Students League. And after doing those paintings, they go to a gallery that just puts yellow light mm-hmm. <laughs> on the paintings. And so every time I see pictures of someone taking a photo of my painting in a museum or in a gallery, they just look yellow, the skin tones. And I'm like, ah, <laughs> going had that lighting, <laughs> you know? And sure. so it's interesting about how, work is perceived versus what the artist's intention is to create it. So anyway, so things kind of like leave the nest in a way and then they kind of have a life of their own, which is fine, actually. Like for me, I think of the paintings as just being an experience that I'm not trying to make a product or anything. And it's a very kind of selfish kind of thing where I want to just make the painting and I don't care how long it takes to make the painting. I just want to do it. And then after it goes away, it's fine if I don't see it again. Do you know what I mean? I've had that experience and uh, it, it's off in the world, you know, and hopefully I can just pay my bills. But the process, I've been painting Holocaust survivors and trying to tell their story for the last five years now. And so they're all in their 80s and 90s. So I've been going to them and interviewing them and filming the interviews so that I can have that in the studio as I work. Mm-hmm. and have the experience of getting to know them better by talking to them and, and having that conversation and then replaying it as I'm doing the paintings. So I don't know if that kind of soaks into making a painting of another person that you just really care about their story and that you want to come through. If there's some type of osmosis there, that's something that's not a technical thing versus it's a it's a value time related issue where I put in a lot of time in the paintings. I don't keep track of hours. I don't put a timeline on how I need to finish anything necessarily. I have paintings lying in the studio I've had there for years that I still work on. You know, I don't want to have deadlines. (laughs) So, and there's a, I can constantly bring a new painting up and kind of bring it up to code to what I've learned. 
So the whole idea is, I guess, that I'm kind of spreading out my own learning of what I've gone through and, and as a painter and putting it towards many paintings versus just one painting, finishing it off, putting another painting on there, starting it, finishing it, going to the next one. I like having a lot of paintings that I can kind of work on all at once. That's really, I think, key to the process as well. But yeah, just really caring about the subjects. I think that's probably the number one thing where I think the technical aspects of painting now in my head, I'm still learning how to become better. But I think that's become more intuitive where the part that's not as intuitive is is the idea of the empathetic eye of having a compassion and, and really caring about the person that's in front of me. And that's something that I don't think I had as much when I was an art student painting models that were chosen by a model coordinator, you know, without me, me choosing the subject and wanting to, to get to know their story and using the painting as an, and drawing as an excuse to be able to do that. Yeah. And I think one instance that really strikes me with that is the, the couple that you painted, the survivors, and I'm going to totally botch these names, but help me out here. Um, <laughs> Farkas. Yeah, yeah, Luis and, and Lazar. Yeah. When you go into that environment, are you just kind of trying to go into the world and kind of obviously, you know, respectfully kind of interact with them, talk to them? But then how do you decide then, like, do they do they just show up for a pose in terms of what they want to wear? Are you kind of directing any of that? or We usually hang out in their living room. <laughs> that was uh, <laughs> my, my, my mother-in-law's friend from Austin. Her parents were survivors that lived in Queens. Mm-hmm. And at the start of my project, so it's all like self-funded grassroots kind of thing where uh, I was paying for a videographer to travel with me so I could film video because I'm not a very good videographer at all. Mm-hmm. And so I would pay a videographer to travel with me and wherever I went. So a lot of times I was meeting folks that were in like the tri-state area or like around New Jersey, uh, Brooklyn, Queens, because that's where I was living at the time. And so we went to their living room, hung out with them. It's it's interesting with the poses. I try to only have them wear neutral kind of clothing. I think that's the only direction I give people is I just don't want to paint a lot of patterns. <laughs> For me, I, just, I don't like the, the details of patterns within clothing. Mm-hmm. For some reason, it's just not something that I like to do. So I tend to use more neutral clothing patterns. My wife loves painting <laughs> fabrics and cl- patterns and everything. I'm exactly opposite. And so I'm, I'm more into painting skin and, and hands and, and trying to show age that way. And, and um, yeah, so so basically I don't direct them on how they how they sit or their hand gestures. I try to have them do something natural. Mm-hmm. I do kind of like adjust their hands because I want to be able to see all the fingers in a certain way that are articulated in something that's natural for them, a natural position for them. You know, I'm not like going to throw someone's hands in pockets I love painting hands, you know, because I think that hands are just as important as a portrait. You know, they're how we interact with everything in the world. If, if we are lucky to have hands, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're constantly picking up stuff. And that tactileness that we have in our hands is kind of like our shield with reality. And so they age with us. So, I mean, we get to know each other in their, their living room. Unfortunately, Lazar was kind of suffering through a little bit of dementia. Mm-hmm. And that's the one thing I've, that the most painful thing I've found with for me is I'm not capturing these people at their prime, unfortunately, because I've been getting them when they're in their 90s, but still being able to talk to them and learn about their stories. And thankfully, there's archives that I can even delve in further into their lives. Like the um, the USC Shoah Foundation has archives of Holocaust survivor testimony that I'm constantly referencing as I'm working as well. Yeah, so just it's this idea of just researching people and meeting them firsthand and trying to capture the the feeling that I get from them within the painting as I'm doing it, that I've had that experience that I can translate that hopefully or transfer that to the viewer in some way, shape or form. And I do some things that are interesting. I mean, for me that nobody understands or gets is that in the background of that painting is, a, is like an abstract line that kind of separates the light from the dark behind them. Mm-hmm. And that represents the, uh, the border of, uh, Czechoslovakia and Hungary. So Luis used to live in Hungary in Signet, where um, actually Elie Wiesel's from, who wrote Night. I don't know if you know that book. Mm-hmm. And on the other side in Czechoslovakia is where Lazar lived. And he used to go to her town to meet girls. <laughs> and they met each other and were kind of friendly before the war. 
And it was interesting that during the war, he was put into a Czech work camp and then she was sent to Auschwitz. And at one point they were crossing the border on the same day, but they didn't know it after they'd met. And so he, after the war, he, he escaped from the Czech work camp after kind of the war was kind of, as he said, like loosening up. And he went to just find her, which I thought was really beautiful. And so he eventually found her and uh, they got married. And he used to work as a grocer in Queens, you know, like this amazing story of love and resilience. And it's from some guy that is just like packing bags for you or checking you out at the grocery store in Queens. You know, these stories are incredible, you know, and they're kind of hidden. And obviously that's important to you, you know, in terms of kind of, you know, is that kind of just in terms of, you know, thinking about everybody has like a, a certain story, uh, you know, there, there's a certain sense of humanity, obviously, by, you know, working through, uh, you know, figurative based works, you're going to kind of get to know somebody through the process. I mean, what, what kind of drives that? Is it just that, that interaction or the potential for a painting maybe, right? Cause it's going to maybe potentially resonate differently, you know, so, something that's just totally devoid of that kind of interaction with a, with someone and, and kind of getting to know them. I think that's like maybe 99.9% of it. Having an honest lifelike story that's there. That's kind of, I always say kind of trapped in Amber for the future mm-hmm. it, and they're overlooked. They're overlooked people in a lot of cases, you know, these stories Caring for people, I guess, is uh, is kind of important if you want to be a figurative painter. Sure. Painting the, the Holocaust survivors, for me, has been really educational. It's an entire spectrum of humanity and, and how that they cope with what they've been through, with how they love and the families that they've built. And I find their lives extremely inspiring as to what they've been through. And a lot of them just keep going and they don't use that as an excuse as to anything, they just they just go, mm-hmm. and they have these thriving lives and the, this immigrant kind of spirit that is undiminished at all. They're not they're not victims, you know. They don't think of themselves as victims, and I think that's something that's really really powerful that I've learned from uh, doing this series. And for me, trying to, you know, we all want to better ourselves and technically and whatever, but we also also don't we all want to become more human ourselves Mm -hmm. and having an excuse to interact with other humans in a way that's more intimate, thoughtfully and and deeply. It's uh, it's a great job, you know. Absolutely. (laughs) It strikes me, too, to think about it even in, you know, today's times, you know, like to have an interaction like that has got to be something that's pretty awe-inspiring. You know, again, I know that especially like, say, politically, like right now, there's such, you know, huge division and maybe people kind of get lost in, you know, the narrative of something. But I'm sure also kind of talking to somebody that's been through so much and keeps striving to kind of keep going. I mean, I'm sure that's got to be pretty, pretty inspiring as well. Yeah, no, like what's going on right now is just like I mean, the rise in even just anti-Semitism in the last 10 years or so has been, I guess, within if having artwork that could be in a way, again, for me, it's it's very selfish. I get to have these experiences, you know, it's, but if the report can somehow humanize someone who was considered the other at one point or if they inspire another artist to paint their culture and people in their culture can be more humanized to other people that would hate. I think that's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. You kind of bring that experience to others, you know, or at least hopefully. Empathy. I think we definitely, we all need more empathy. I think that things are just getting too extreme on the left and the right. Right now, it's pretty, pretty insane. I think we need some more gray area. I agree, you know, that that idea totally makes sense to me, and especially now more than ever. To kind of steer it in a slightly different way with your work, I'm curious, you know, how is it different than when you're painting, you know, family members or, or people that are really close to you, friends, um, in terms of that process? Is it is it any kind of different, or is it just like you kind of learn a new, you know, personality of, of your, your spouse or your mother? Or... Yeah, no, I mean, those are just kind of like the best paintings. <laughs> mm-hmm. In a lot of way, again, like that you can just be completely, again, completely selfish in a way. I mean, we, how much do we really know even our partners? I guess pretty well. So I don't have like the best relationship with my mom, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And so I would paint her like she lives far away and we don't 
talk or visit with each other very often and everything. And so, but it's something I kind of longed for. And so I did a painting of her as kind of a way of spending more time with her. It's funny, I didn't used to keep track of the hours uh, on a painting until I started teaching online. (laughs) (laughs) So I would know exactly how long a demo took because that's how much footage (laughs) I had. Not including the time where you sit back and you're actually thinking about a piece. You know, you do a lot more looking back and thinking about if something's working or not working within a piece um, versus just having a brush to canvas kind of thing. But I spent so much time on that painting. I remember being in the studio working on her hands and someone came to visit and they were like, wow, it looks done. Like that, that looks great. I'm like, are you done? I'm like, I don't know. I think I have like another month. I want to work on these hands. (laughs) And they were like, well, has the message been sent? I'm like, yeah, I think the message is sent to other people. You know what I mean? But this is my way of kind of meditating and, and spending time with her, you know? So it's, it was a kind of a very selfish thing for me that I don't feel like I overwork a painting at all because I'm constantly finding more nuance areas to kind of more transitions that I can make better and, and more subtle. Mm-hmm. I don't think of my work as being detailed necessarily either because I know like photorealist painters that will paint every pore, every little hair, every little like, blemish and everything and every wrinkle and whatever and i think of it more as a painting i guess versus i want to make paint maybe look like a pour <laughs> and have those brush strokes kind of form something have the paint kind of interact a little bit more with it rather than copying the photograph verbatim mm-hmm. and so for me that kind of that time kind of aspect is again something I really enjoy about painting and, and I've been lucky to be able to spend a year on a painting, you know, mm-hmm. or two years on a painting and be able to pull things out and kind of get back into that headspace. Again, one of the things that that strikes me too about the work is that there's like a sense of gravity to the, to the figures, you know, like, especially like in, in the facial components. I mean, you kind of really get that sense of weight, you know, relative to someone's, you know, expression. But, you know, I guess maybe one other thing that I kind of noticed relative to the, the portrait of your father, one of the things that was really interesting to me, too, is that this also is kind of more, it seems more like impromptu in terms of the interior versus like the one we were just speaking about. You know, I believe that there's kind of like text or, you know, like an abstracted kind of, you know, background, whereas this one kind of you know, it takes place more in like a, a setting, you know, and I, I would think that somebody seeing it might start kind of, you know, you know, read the title and start to kind of form this narrative or this, you know, think about this interaction, you know, as, as, uh, you know, we're meeting the gaze of the, the person staring at us, but maybe, maybe talk a little about this one in terms of, you know, maybe how it came about, because again, it's a really fascinating work to me. That was in my, my old studio in, in Brooklyn. And I thought it was really interesting when he was he was visiting me. They didn't visit very often. <laughs> and, uh, and I was caught like a moment that, uh, that he was in the studio. And I thought it was really kind of, I still thought of it as abstraction, <laughs> mm-hmm. the background. Even though I think you can see a little bit of the fridge in my, my apartment. I think I was actually living in there at the same time in the studio. I think it was during my divorce or something. <laughs> And I kind of like that idea that there's a little bit of space and distance as well that I could add as well as kind of those, those kind of angular lines. So I guess I don't really I didn't really think of it as being any different or having kind of a narrative necessarily. I don't think of narratives within pieces at all. I think that the, the person himself is a narrative as opposed to I mean, I'm also a huge Wyeth fan. So maybe that kind of got in there a little bit. Mm-hmm. I wish I had a better answer for you. I'm sorry. <laughs> No, no, it's it well it's just interesting because like I mean I, I I think, you know, as my my parents get older and I start reflecting on, you know, the fact that they won't be around or something like that, you know, like I start kind of thinking about those types of moments of facial expressions and, you know, interactions and so I can't help but think about how poignant a lot of this work is, you know, when you see any of these paintings where you kind of capture that, you know, maybe kind of like you were talking about, you know, being really, you know, young in your twenties, not, not easy to kind of establish that relationship, um, with your subjects. And so I think that's something that's really fascinating to me as I'm, I'm getting older looking at these kind of like in a weird way, like the same way that, you know, how you see a movie when you're older and it's different, you know, like, I think you start kind of noticing these things as you're, as you're getting older. Really the purpose behind my work, I guess, is committing things to memory Mm-hmm. So my dad's not around anymore. He passed away, unfortunately, three years ago. Sorry to hear that. No, four years ago. And I still remember every little like nook in his face, you know, every little 
movement of his, of his face. And I'm, I'm very, very fortunate and very um, grateful that I, was, I actually was able to paint him, you know, while he was alive. And that's something I'm going to go visit my mom, I think, in September. I'm hoping to sit down with her and paint and draw her some more. This idea of just because, uh, again, committing her more to my memory. So to kind of think about like your day to day, I mean, are you jumping around like you kind of indicated between different paintings, different drawings? I mean, how do you decide what's going to be the pull for today or is it just whatever the day brings? It's always different. I guess it was consistent a little bit during the pandemic where I would get up, I would have my coffee, <laughs> go into the studio, kind of look at what's going on. We have a home studio that we work out of mostly. We have, a, we have two studios. We have a studio that's out that's maybe a mile away. That's a little bit larger. It's where uh, I do bigger, bigger paintings. But pandemic, I want to kind of finish up some of the smaller type works I had kind of floating around. Mm-hmm. I have coffee. My wife got me into working out regularly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she would work out and then I would work out. And then I would get back into the studio like and work until maybe 5 o'clock or 5.30. And then we'd cook dinner together and just hang out on the, on the sofa and watch movies. That was my pandemic, <laughs> spending time with family and stuff, but we really couldn't go anywhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. So our social gatherings would be on our neighbor's front yard, six feet away, having like a bottle of wine or something like that in the front yard in Albuquerque, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> sure, sure. So, we, so we, we lucked out pretty well. But so I, I'm traveling to Brooklyn right now and I brought drawings to work on here. So I'm working on some drawings for a study I'm doing of an of a friend of mine who is actually an art model and he he moved back to New Mexico and he's part of the the Apache nation. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of I want to do paintings now that are kind of exploring that idea of who who are the like the Native Americans right now, the indigenous people mm-hmm. of the area that I live in. Again, trying to understand a little bit more of where I'm living. <laughs> and so I'm drawing him right now and I'm doing some studies. For him and uh it's really really interesting like he has a war paint that he wears and he he actually lived in new york for a while his name's raven and really interesting interesting guy and so asking questions about where he grew up was really interesting and so kind of this idea again using painting to kind of understand things that are happening around me yeah i try to do art wherever i am i guess well, and does it always start like in terms of like a series of studies to kind of see what you want to investigate long term as a painting? Yeah, I think so. A lot of times it's just they're drawing studies that I do. And um, from there, I kind of move it into the painting realm where I'll, I'll blow up the drawing mm-hmm. and use that as kind of just for the uh, for the painting as well. So like right now, these are kind of smaller than life size. I did. I've been working on two of them since I've been out here for like the last three or four days. Mm-hmm. And I'll back to the studio in Albuquerque, I'll, I'll actually photograph them and put them into the computer into Photoshop and I'll kind of size them up to life size and I'll use that as the basis of my drawing to start the painting. So I'm not sure if I want to do profile or, or three quarters right now. <laughs> he said something once, like we kind of got in this little debate on, on Instagram <laughs> about a post kind of like slightly political. And he said that he doesn't want to be thought of as a victim as being a native American he said that, you know, I'm Apache. We put up a good fight. You guys just beat us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, that's really interesting kind of perspective, you know, and, and let's kind of show him with this kind of pride that he has, you know, that he's not beaten at all. So uh, I might do profile because his chin's up. It just looks really a lot more confident. And so I think about that in a way of getting to know the person. It helps also to kind of choose how you want to portray them as well. Yeah, and it kind of gives them room, right, I guess, in terms of thinking about that interaction, you know, and, and I guess, you know, just kind of the times that we're in, I think that totally makes sense. So so my, my dork out question was going to be um, related to your palette, because um, I know, again, there's, there's tons of stuff, you know, you do workshops, you've got, uh, you know, tutorials and, and instructionals and all sorts of things that people can check out. So I, you know, certainly, uh, looked through that and that was super interesting. But again, I noticed in some instances, you know, there was a very clean kind of meticulous palette and then ones where things are really caked on and kind of, you know, layered up. Um, and maybe this is kind of a weird segue just to kind of think about it, but I mean like, so you're kind of like 
constantly kind of remixing stuff as you're, as you're working and, and kind of applying, you know, your various layers of paint? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that it's very, try to make that again, very intuitive as the work. I mean, I think that I've kind of, I'm kind of programmed to use certain colors at certain places and, and this idea of using broken color mm-hmm. is important to me versus, uh, local color so local color would be like i'm caucasian i guess right and so it's kind of maybe one color but just variations of shadows whereas i want to kind of delve deeper into what are the colors that make up these colors like the veins coming through the skin and the pinks and greens if you look at your hands very closely you can see that there's a like a lot of variation in um what we see and so that's kind of what i want to capture Everyone always says I'm kind of a detailed painter and and such, but I don't think of it as detail. I think of it as kind of understanding, you know, everything's kind of this understanding of what's going on with this transparency of of the skin and translucency of the skin, where everything that's kind of underneath kind of comes through and shades uh, the different colors, like on on the face, like if foreheads are usually more yellow because there's less blood, you know, the nose area and the cheeks are more vascular, so there's more... There's a little bit more reds going through those and they're cooler reds versus warmer reds, you know, that kind of move more towards purple. And so constantly thinking about this idea, again, of contrasts of warm and cool temperatures and how they interplay with one another to vibrate. And so I paint very directly mm-hmm. and in the moment, like I'm not mixing up colors beforehand before I know anything, what I'm going to paint. Mm-hmm. So I don't I don't really have a formula to how I paint, but I think that I have an ingrained <laughs> intuitive formula of the colors I know that I'm going to kind of go after. And I think that just happens over just doing things for a long time. I don't labor over picking colors or mixing at all. It's just kind of, if I just put it down and if it's wrong, I just adjust it, you know? I would think that that allows you to kind of get after what it is that you're excited about, you know, which is to kind of capture this emotional kind of quality in the work as opposed to, you know, worrying about the technical ways that you're kind of working through it. It's like you kind of become, you know, fluent after all this time and and pressure to kind of be able to do that. Yeah, no, I think that like my mistakes and successes within a painting kind of show the humanity of the piece itself as capturing something that's human versus like a camera that's so mechanical. You know what I mean? I think that, um, and I'm definitely not perfect in any way, shape or form and probably could get better at these concepts and these ideas, but that imperfection, I think makes it just a little bit more human. I'm going to go with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, again, it's, it's, it's fascinating too, you know, cause you've got all these other uh, yet to be discovered kind of experiences, these interactions with other people and, and stories that you might tell. So, you know, I think that's one of the things that's so easy to be drawn into in terms of your work when you see it. Even though, again, I haven't had the pleasure of being able to see it in person. So hopefully, <laughs> as life kind of returns somewhat to normal, hopefully that'll be something that, that I can remedy at some point. You know, to kind of think about that, what what kind of things are, are coming up for you? I'm sure that you have, you know, maybe some deadlines or some things that have been, you know, postponed in the past year or so. But are there, you know, shows that you're working towards or pieces that you'll be exhibiting in the near future? Uh, yeah, I'm actually um, doing a two-person show with a guy that kind of mentored me early on named John Nava out in California, he asked me to be part of a a two-person show where he took one of my oil paintings and made a giant tapestry out of it, which was pretty insane because I I like to work on everything in life-size so that there's like a one-to-one communication with the subject and the viewer when I work. But he took one of my survivor paintings and kind of blew it up and had it woven in Belgium and kind of funded this thing to happen. And it, he blew it up 11 feet by nine feet. Wow. Which is insane. And, and it's one of the, the refugee survivors after crystal knocked in, um, her family left like right after that and moved to Chicago. Um, her story is really incredible. And so he's going to be exhibiting actually something that's very social and very topical is kids that were, um, abused and murdered or killed at the border. Uh, coming in from Mexico because of the the poor way that they were treated. So we're kind of doing a dual show where he's handling that topic while I'm handling handling the topic that I usually handle. And there's some parallels, you know, between this idea of refugees coming from one country to another that we're kind of playing with. And I'm going to have, I think, three or four paintings and a lot of the drawing studies I do for the paintings as well with that. And that's coming up in June 
June 12th in Ventura, California. And then other than that, these guys in California are making a film about my project, which is kind of interesting. So they're going to be following me around to meet survivors. And I'm going to be meeting with the first survivor that I've talked to since the COVID thing kind of hit in Las Vegas. My wife and I are going out to the, the opening of the show in Ventura, California. And then we're driving from there to Vegas to meet with the survivor, Ben Lesser. And we're going to spend a few days with Ben Lesser, getting to know him and doing some live painting of him and drawing. And it's going to take those studies back into the studio and do a painting of him. Excellent. Excellent. Are there going to be workshops coming up now that things are slowly kind of uh, returning? Or is that something that still hasn't been set up yet in, in terms of, uh, you know, post-pandemic life? Yeah, I don't. It's funny. We, we, we took everything online and have been teaching online through Zoom workshops, which has been really incredible because I've been really filming a high, like high definition video that I was able to kind of trans, transmit to students, which is kind of nice because you can you can do a lot of things online that you can't do in real life with students. And I think kind of like a combination of two, the, the two are, is probably the best way to go if you're learning. And I might be using this, uh, these drawings of Raven uh, for a workshop, I think in August, I think I'm going to do an online workshop. My wife is teaching in Mexico City, I think this year, but I don't have any traveling, I think, on the books yet. Well, and so if somebody did want to find out about, you know, workshops or, you know, any of the other things that you've done, documentaries, anything, is that pretty much, you know, just go to your website is the best place? Yeah, actually Instagram. Okay. <laughs> Lately, like I haven't been updating my site as much. Uh, Instagram is kind of cool because you see I post a lot of in-progress shots and it's a little bit more fuller of a representation, I guess, of what the work I do mm -hmm. and where I'm at and with the workshops. And I do a lot of time lapse on there and, and videos and, and interviews with the survivors, stuff that I, I can't put on a website, you know, end up on my Instagram. And it's just uh, David Kassin, uh, K-A-S-S-A-N on Instagram. That's probably the best way to, to find out about workshops and see what I'm working on. Stay up to date as it were. So again, I know that you're in a number of other places, so it's sad that it would be like a platform like that versus a website, <laughs> but <laughs> well, those are, those are all changing now, I think, <laughs> but obviously, obviously all the information for the other links for social media, if you're a Twitter person or whatnot, all of that stuff is up on your website. Well, yeah, again, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to me all about your work today. I feel like we scratched the surface, but I feel like that's every interview. Yeah, again, just really fascinating uh, to, to pick your brain and talk to you about your work. So thanks so much. Yeah, it's been great getting to know you. Thank you. I appreciate this. It's not every day you get asked to do a podcast. It's pretty, pretty amazing. I'm super honored. Thanks once again to David for joining me. Check out his website once again at davidcasson.com. You can find links there for upcoming workshops and all sorts of information, social media. But definitely be sure to follow David on Instagram. That's at davidcasson. You'll find all sorts of things, time lapse as well as updates about work and announcements like his two-person exhibition called Elegies that opens June 12th and runs through August 14th. That's with John Nava, and that's at the Vita Art Center in Ventura, California. Be sure to follow David there for more updates and show exhibition information. If you enjoyed today's episode, check out others on studiobreak.com. We featured a ton of different artists there, working in a variety of different mediums for professional artists to emerging student artists as well. So check them all out. Each of our posts there have images of the artist's artwork, links to their websites, and of course you can listen right there on Studio Break or just subscribe to the podcast. And then that way you've always got something to listen to while you're working away in the studio. And of course, if you enjoyed today's episode, please help spread the word via social media. You can easily do that and help others find this podcast and these artists. So once again, be sure to like our Facebook page. You can find us on Twitter at Studio Break. And of course, on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. That's always a great place to say hello as well. So great hearing from listeners there. Today's music is by Golden Shadow, which features myself. Ben Cohan and Brett Beery. You can see some of Ben's paintings and follow him on Instagram. That's mbencohanstudio on Instagram. And the website is mbencohan.com. Brett Beery is a musician. You can find him on Instagram at Brett Beery. And you'll see there's a link for some of his music there. 
If you want to see some of my paintings, you can check out davidlinaway.com. There's a bunch of work up there. And my exhibition entitled Pathways with Nicole Roller and Megan Hines closes at the McLean County Art Center on June 5th. And if you want to follow along with my work at all, it's Dave Lewin, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please be sure to say hello, especially if you enjoy this podcast. Like I said, always great hearing from artists out there working away in the studio and hopefully filling that studio with wonderful things to think about, ideas. So I hope that your studio is super productive. We'll talk to you real soon.